0: Welcome to the Greater Victoria Shakespeare Festival's Soliloquy Project. Today's
1: play is Henry V. Sound design and theme song for this podcast are by Taylor Lewis. The outro is presented by General Manager Candace Woodland. The podcast is
0: hosted by Artistic Director Karen Lee Pickett. She interviews Dr. Erin Kelly. Hi, I'm Karen Lee Pickett with the Greater Victoria Shakespeare Festival, and with me today is Erin Kelly. Uh, an associate professor in English at the University of Victoria. Uh, she has a research focus on Renaissance drama, and uh, we're here to talk today about the Soliloquy Project. Hi, Erin. Hi. Thanks for doing this. Oh, such a
1: pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Uh,
0: so today we're talking about the opening prologue from Henry V. So first off, why don't you tell us a little bit about the play? Where, where does this speech come in into play, and what is this play about, and... You know, give us a little background.
1: Okay, so this is one of Shakespeare's history plays focused on English history, and it is a play that is mostly focusing on that king's uh, adventures abroad, um, his uh, leading of English troops <laughs> adventures abroad uh, to his his military uh, efforts to claim. France as part of Great Britain, as part of England. And so we get in opening scenes some debates about what the legal claim is. And then we get scenes of Henry going off to France. And then we get lots and lots of scenes leading up to battles. Um, And we ultimately get a kind of comic ending with Henry... uh, wooing and marrying the princess of France as a way of solidifying his claim. Um, This particular speech comes at the very, very beginning of the play, and it's the first of many of these speeches delivered by what we call a chorus, uh, this chorus figure who comes out and speaks directly to the audience. Um, And in this particular play, it's unusual for Shakespeare's plays for having so many choruses. And the chorus is very much setting the scene, explaining what's happening. offering running commentary, and uh, these, these big, grand chorus speeches are something that uh, people who are interested in Shakespeare's Henry V uh, tend to remember, tend to be really interested in.
0: Interesting. Why um, In 1599, why would England be interested uh, to hear about Henry V? That was quite a while before this.
1: Yeah. So um, a few reasons to be interested in Henry V. Um, So the uh, queen who was on the throne in 1599, Queen Elizabeth, was, of course, a descendant from all of these folks back uh, kicking around um, in earlier English history. Um, And particularly Henry V had become, even before Shakespeare's play, a real symbol of English military strength, um, a figure around whom there were lots of stories of England having military victories and even kind of international uh, military success. And so, uh, Henry V was a good character to put on stage if you were trying to present something that was at least somewhat pro-English and patriotic. Um, There actually was something that Shakespeare seems to have been tapping into with this particular play. I mean, first of all, we can assume that he was in part capitalizing on continuing a successful run of English history plays. Uh, written by him and performed by the theatre company he was associated with, The Lord Chamberlain's Men. Those three Henry VI plays are actually about England losing France and then England falling into civil war. Uh, and the right after that, after those three Henry VI plays, Shakespeare writes Richard the um, also uh, really, really successful. And so then, um, having had this successful run of English history plays, Shakespeare does something that we all might be kind of familiar with. He basically starts a prequel. Yeah. So uh, the no, we never
0: see that happen. In, right. uh, so modern
1: day. and and that and that prequel is basically Richard the followed by one Henry IV, two Henry IV, and then Henry V. The
0: well, what, what is, how did these choruses function? I mean, what's the, what was the, what was the purpose of?
1: Well, I mean, it? on a very, very basic level, I think the chorus is telling us what it's doing, which is that um, it is talking directly to an audience present in a theater and in a theater that if we imagine it to be the globe would have been basically an empty stage. Late 16th, early 17th century London commercial theaters didn't have elaborate sets. Um, They generally just had players, actors coming on stage uh, with props and that the plays are in many ways setting their scenes, letting the audience know where action is taking place, establishing things like time of day through language and in many ways the chorus is explicitly telling the audience that that is what is going to happen that you know the the co- chorus is specifically saying you know can this cockpit hold the vasty fields of France or you know is it possible that this unworthy scaffold can bring forward so so great an object as Henry V's military victories in other words we really can't bring this to you in anything like a realistic way. We cannot bring thousands of soldiers. We cannot have horses. We cannot have gigantic battles. Um, Instead, what we can have is language and that this language serves as a kind of figure um the, the wonderful illusion here of a crooked figure that may attest in a little in little place a million, you know, the same way that a number on a page can suggest a gigantic number. Maybe our language in this play can suggest this gigantic series of big events. And the way that will work is you will bring your imagination um so in other words the the chorus is basically inviting the audience to awake its imagination so that it can envision participate in bring its own ideas about Henry V and about battle and about nationalism and about you know victory and bravery and all of these kinds of ideas and and bring them To this play. Um, So, in many ways, I I like to think that it's an invitation. It's an invitation for the audience to recognize itself and understand itself as an important part of this play. Um, The other thing that the chorus is doing, though, I think is also really interesting. in terms of literary history. So the kinds of plays that have choruses and most conventionally are not English Renaissance plays particularly. There are some English Renaissance plays from the time of Shakespeare that have choruses, but what Shakespeare and everybody who went to grammar school with him and anyone else who would have been educated in this period would know is that the kinds of plays that always have choruses would be ancient Greek and Roman plays. Mm -hmm. These Mm -hmm. kinds of, you know, Classical literature plays by you know Seneca and Sophocles uh, have play have choruses, and so by having a chorus come out throughout the play, in some ways, what Shakespeare's play is doing is that it's signaling, Hi, I am a work of literature, Um, and the same way that uh, classical. Uh, plays, classical literature is important and is talking about subject matter we think Is important, classical mythology, classical history. This English history, this English king, is the same kind of subject matter. It's just as important, it's just as interesting. And I think that, you know, in addition to just having a chorus, the fact that the first thing the chorus does when it comes out is that it basically invokes a muse. I mean, you invoke a muse at the beginning of a classical epic. Invoking a muse is a Homer move. And so the play is, in many ways, signaling with this opening chorus, you know, this is a literary text, and the way you know it's a literary text is that it has all of these features you associate with this classical literature that you respect, and our English history is just as good and just as important and just as magnificent as anything that we could hear about Troy or about ancient Rome.
0: We are that great. Mm-hmm. And it's quite modern, I think this the, the chorus in the way that it it makes us aware of being in the theater and being you know being invited to to participate
1: absolutely, although I think sometimes that wh- one of the reasons that these kinds of things can seem modern to us is because they uh, are on the other side of something that you know has come to seem normal but that actually at the time of Shakespeare would not have seemed normal at all which is you know people will say now things like you know this is a moment when a character is breaking the fourth wall or this is a moment you know where we get to see behind the curtain and of course Shakespeare's theaters didn't have an imaginary fourth wall Um, there's no proscenium arch there is no curtain. The the, the, the mm-hmm. idea that um, characters in a play are inhabiting some kind of realistic uh, space that we somehow magically can see into and that they are completely, you know, unaware of and disconnected from audiences is actually something that develops um, into the late 17th century and, and mm-hmm. kind of sort of a late 17th century invention and becomes really more, much more normalized in the 18th and 19th century. And this is before that. It also can seem modern because, of course, you know, there are modern playwrights like Brecht who kind of rediscovered some of these features of theater Um, or or Artaud for that matter, and and became fascinated with them. But they, in some ways, were looking back at Elizabethan Mm -hmm. theatrical traditions and uh, bringing them into their own plays as a way of resisting realism and naturalism and creating something that was much more stylized and self-consciously theatrical. But, you know, Shakespeare's plays regularly have characters or figures talk to audiences or regularly remind audiences that what they're watching is a play and, uh, and regularly play with that metatheatrical dynamic to create really
0: fascinating effects. Like What would have been uh, our experience mm-hmm. if we're seeing this perhaps on the, uh, as the opening play of the Globe Theatre in
1: 1599? Well. Great question. I mean, so basically, what happens is what what, what I find really wonderful about this uh, opening speech is, let's just you know take it nice and slowly. So um, someone comes to this newly built uh, theater. Someone who showed up in this space uh, would basically come in and and pay a penny. Um, If they paid a penny, they would then be able to stand on the ground in front of the theater. And what they would really see mostly is a a relatively large uh, stage that is, as is alluded to in the speech, is a scaffold. Um, It's basically an elevated raised platform. And that you know, as that person was there, uh, one of the things that we do have to imagine is that uh, there would be people milling around, there would be people talking, there would probably be people um, selling refreshments, uh, you're probably fruit. And one of the things that might well uh, give the audience the sense that, hey, the play is starting Might well include uh, some kind of horn, some kind of drum, some kind of sound signal. But having someone come out and stand front and center in that stage and start speaking. um, And then, of course, what we get is this wonderful rousing oh, for a muse of fire, which is is promising something pretty exciting, something pretty grand. Um, And we do get very explicitly, very soon in the speech, references to the theater itself, the the idea that you are in a theater and what you are about to see is a play, Uh, what we would like to have is a kingdom for a stage, princes to act, monarchs to behold the swelling scene. Uh, What we'd really like to have is Henry like himself, you know, not us playing Henry, but Henry coming out and playing himself somehow. Uh, But what we do have, pardon and gentles all, what we do have is an unworthy scaffold. What we do have is a cockpit. What we do have is a wooden O and that uh you know that is where we are going to present what we have and what we have is basically um a a, a cipher is a representation is a a minuscule version of how grand and big and exciting all of this must have been and the reason that this is going to work is because you bring your imagination and Part of what I think this speech also calls attention to is that part of that imagination is that it really is assuming previous knowledge. It's assuming that, you know, when the chorus says, "Warlike Harry, that people will say, oh right, war like Harry, Henry V, that's who that is.
0: Mm. Yeah, well, that would have been exciting. <laughs>
1: Very, very, very exciting. And so one of the things that I do think is fascinating about this speech in relation to our uh, current moment is that, you know, many people now experience a play like Henry V um, through... The experience of seeing a film version and film versions so often are showing us exactly the things that this chorus is telling us we're not actually going to get to see. They do show us horses, they do show us people in mud, they do show us Mm -hmm. gigantic groups of uh, people dressed as soldiers engaging in realistic looking battles. And that's all well and good, but um, I think that the experience of seeing this play in a theater and particularly those first performances, um, part of the reason that there is all of this grand and wonderful language is that it's pointing out what we're not actually going to see. But in a way, uh, the experience of going to this play might be a bit more like listening to radio drama or, dare I say, listening to a podcast. That, you know, as you listen to radio drama or a podcast, you often do, you know, fill out with your imagination uh, what the people whose voices you're hearing might look like, uh, what they might be wearing, what they might be doing. And so uh, actually, we regularly see references in the 16th and 17th century to people going to hear a play. And I think this chorus offers us some indication of why people might have said they were going to hear a play. Mm-hmm. There's actually quite a lot happening here by that quite a lot uh, gets done by getting the audience to listen more so than necessarily to see.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this language is so powerful. I mean, I, I've, I've used it um, tons over the years f- with um, students and uh, for warm ups and, and things like that because it's just it's so stirring and it's so um, really, really fun to say.
1: Absolutely. I mean, and, and just to say, it's interesting that, you know, the chorus does create the idea of the audience as a group, and that then... Um, I would argue the play later takes advantage of that because then when Henry V comes out and he has a couple of, you know, gigantic, magnificent, rhetorically ornate, rousing speeches, uh, we can imagine that part of what he's doing is he's speaking to this audience and this audience at that point is able to imagine themselves as this group of soldiers or, you know, group of uh, onlookers that Henry is speaking to. So this idea that the audience becomes almost a character.
0: Yeah, for sure. And it makes it a perfect uh, speech for our soliloquy project, speaking directly to the audience. and In this case, it will be uh, audiences of one. So uh, thank you so much, Erin. I really appreciate your, uh, your talking to us about this today. Oh, my pleasure. And
1: uh, I hope that everyone who gets a chance to listen does uh, get to have a really rousing experience, a rousing uh, imaginary uh, travel to either the globe to see an original performance of this play, or maybe to uh, the Battle of Agincourt to watch some horses and armies clashing and some fantastic adventures. Great.
0: (laughs) All right. Thank you. And uh, we'll talk to you again uh, on our next episode. Absolutely. uh, we talk about As You Like It. Great.
1: Looking forward to it.
0: Okay. Thank you for listening to The Soliloquy Project, produced by the Greater Victoria Shakespeare Festival. To donate or for more information about our festival, please visit www.vicshakespeare.com. That's www.vicshakespeare.com. Stay safe and cozy this winter, and we'll see you again soon.